Hello, everyone. Sports matters after a uh, a longer hiatus than planned due to some issues that we won't talk about. Back for January 14th, 2014, the first program of the new year after I think the last one was December 17th or something like that. It's It's been a while, but... Uh, joined by Ed Barnes, I'm Brian Wilmer, and uh, I guess we can revisit our, our nice little hiatus one more time briefly. Absolutely we can. I mean, there, from a sporting perspective, the number of things that have happened uh, since we've had our last show uh, that were noteworthy, um, I mean, obviously just through the roof with the slate of bowl games, BCS title game, last BCS, um, NFL playoffs, um, and obviously today, one of the big things I cover on this show is the passing of Jerry Coleman and, and um, in a rare show of restraint from us, you know, try to actually pay the man the respect he deserves because the man was the embodiment of the true American hero. And we'll talk all about that later. But uh, I mean, when, when I think about the hiatus that we had, uh, obviously, I've made it very clear that I'm a complete honk for my school, San Diego State University. And what a period it's been winning the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, which you know, it's famous, so it must be good, uh, with a huge win over Buffalo, a noted football powerhouse that it is. And But the bigger the bigger thing, and the fact we didn't get to talk about this last week when it was actually uh, timely, I guess you could say, uh, was, was kind of heartbreaking to me. San Diego State winning at Fog Allen Fieldhouse over Kansas. Yeah, and of course, wow. you have Jay Billis making excuses about how Kansas didn't show up, and they basically just gave San Diego State the game. Well, I find it kind of amazing. They're ranked uh, 10 in the AP, 11 in the coaches' poll, and I checked out uh, the ranking in Jay Billis's top 68 teams today, and he has them ranked 15, talking about, but uh, even though the advanced uh, metrics don't like the Aztecs, I'm giving them their proper respect. And it's like, uh, I, I guess, I mean, you know, if, if you could just come out and say that you think they're good instead of backhanded compliments uh, every week, I think that would probably say more. I I think it was the UVA Duke game that I watched the other night, and I, I was so sick of hearing Doris Burke kiss Jay Billis' ass. I mean, it, it happened over and over and over and over. And I, I get it. I mean, it's it's ESPN. It is what it is. But it still it just it drives me nuts to hear it. And and Billis is good, but he's turned into a troll basically. It's always interesting to see the evolution of people. Uh, yeah. From the time that they start on television to what they become if they become established in the world of television. Right. right. And, you know, I've heard examples thrown out like a Mark Schlereth and what he, you know, when he came on, it's like, oh, I thought he was really insightful at first. And now it's just catchphrase and the word football over and over again is, was made a joke by that one impersonator a few years ago. Merrill Hodge um, with Factor Back. Oh, well, and the shortest ties ever. Him and Michael Irvin in the contest for shortest tie ever, I think, that, a few years <laughs> yeah. back. That was interesting, too. So it is always interesting to see that that evolution. But the thing is, is if you're doing a similar thing for a long time, how do you try to keep yourself uh, – how do you try to keep it fresh? And no, I don't mean going to Subway. That place is terrible. Well, I mean, it's there's one thing. With reinventing yourself, and I, I think you found people like Vin Scully reinventing himself, even though it's subtle, even though he's you know not coming out and talking about you know all the the normal standard buzzwords that you hear from most uh, you know broadcaster bobbleheads these days. He is reinventing himself to a degree. Um, you know, there's there are some people who have been in the game a long time who have kind of you know evolved, but there's a difference between evolution and devolution or de-evolution, however you want to call it. 
And uh, Jay Billis is one of those who has devolved over the past few years. One of the things I would say, though, about Vin Scully is Vin Scully was never really asked to be a pundit. Vin Scully true, was asked true. to call the game. And because he wasn't in a situation where he has to be in a studio and, you know, give his opinion as in a debate setting as, as you know, every sports media outlet seems to set up these days, it's allowed him to not have to go into that forum. And that's a huge advantage for him in trying to maintain, the, you know, the endless class that he has. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk about Vin in a minute because he has ties to the uh, to the larger story we want to talk about on the program. But one question I wanted to ask you: mm -hmm. uh, We talk on the program all the time about the foul situation that's out there, and I've uh, I've had the privilege of sitting next to the Big South supervisor of officials a couple of times and watched him watch games and watched him talk to officials. Uh, of course, the things that he said are are privileged, but it's it's just kind of interesting to watch how all that evolves. I wanted to ask you, and maybe this is kind of a naive take, but it's it's just a thought. Do we think that the new college rules with with you know the defensive rules and the foul calls and such are kind of making man defense extinct because man defense requires such proximity you have to stay with your guy and it's so tough to play defense without using your hands you kind of wonder if it's making man defense extinct well, um, and I'm really not trying – this This actually seems like a relevant example. I'm not just trying to be a homer when I bring this up. But sure. San Diego State has become one of the best defensive clubs in the nation by points per game allowed, field goal percentage against, uh, you know, all of these very standard statistical measures. And some of the more advanced metrics have them near the top of the nation in, in defense as well. And Steve Fisher only plays man-to-man. -man. and only has played man-to-man -man for a long time. At one point, um, when Tony Bland was an assistant on his staff, he tried to encourage Fish to let him teach the team the Syracuse 2-3 zone. And they tried it in a couple exhibition games, and it worked so poorly uh, that F Fisher said immediately, we're going back to man and we're staying with it. I can't even remember the last time I saw the Aztecs play a zone. It's been several seasons. It's so, true. I, I see your point, but the other side of that is San Diego State is full of very lengthy, very athletic players who have this, the quickness to be able to use their feet and stay in front of people. And not you know most of the people uh, playing college basketball do not have the kind of athleticism that San Diego State has. So your point is very well taken. Yeah, a couple of things I would say, and, and you're dead on about San Diego State. Anybody who's seen them play would have to agree with that. Here's here's the couple of things I would add to it. First of all, playing man defense requires such discipline. And that's that's one of the things about San Diego State's defense and Syracuse too is their discipline on defense. You don't see that out of a lot of teams. A lot of teams, you know, are lazy. They like to reach and so they collect a lot of fouls. So that's that's one way that, you know, you have to ask this question. Another thing too, you're starting to see so many modifications on man defense. You're starting to see uh, ball screens. You're starting to see doubling of the ball. Uh, whenever the ball goes into the paint, it gets doubled every single time. Uh, you're seeing, you know, the pack line, which Dick Bennett made famous, and and uh, Tony Bennett is run, and and Pat Kelsey at Winthrop runs. You're starting to see these modifications on the man defense, much like you saw the modifications on the zone. You're seeing, you know, you saw the one three one and the the box in one, the diamond in one, those kinds of things. You're starting to see the man defense evolve a little more. I think the the main thing I would wonder though is a how long is it going to take for college defenders to get the discipline they need if you're not at a program like a, a San Diego State or a Syracuse that is so 
uh, intent on teaching it and you know teaching defensive discipline. And second, how are you going to stop dribble penetration? Because the game these days has turned into dribble to the basket, look to kick out and find an open man, or draw a foul. That's pretty much what basketball's turned into, and Duke is the, the perfect example of it. Charge the lane, look to get a foul, or look to kick to Jabari Parker or Rashid Suleiman or whomever, and you know try and pop a shot. That's, that's pretty much what the game has become. So what's it going to take to get that discipline and to stop that dribble penetration? I, I don't know about what it's going to be able to take. As much as anything, you know, being a successful defensive team is just a commitment to actually wanting to do it. I mean, True. a lot of it is, is so much effort. Um, of course, you still have to have some physical gifts to go with it. You know, if there's a guy that's twice as fast, quick as you, uh, good luck staying with them no matter how much you want to. You know, I'm not guarding LeBron anytime soon. <laughs> True. So, so uh, that's one side of it. But the other side of it, too, though, is the way that offense – has evolved you mentioned the drive and kick style it really seems like it's trickled down from the nba and it's it's interesting the way that in football we've seen offense evolve from college to the nfl whereas in you know in bat in in basketball situations a lot of it is in the nba drive and kick basketball you know if you look at the way that the suns were when steve nash was winning his mvp awards that was all based on drive and kick and transition and push the ball and those kinds of things and, and some of those concepts Maybe you know the transition hasn't come to college quite as much, but the drive and kick game sure is, is there. And all of a sudden, you see more more offenses running the four out and five out sets. Where okay, everyone's just going to space the floor. We drive, and whoever doubles, you know, and the help defender, whoever comes, uh, you know, the help defender leaves free. He's our shooter. One thing and that's I, what you're talking about. So yeah. as far as how they're going to stop it, good question, Brian. If they're really going to keep calling games this tight, it just means that there's going to be a lot of free throw, free throws or throws. In college basketball, <laughs> and it just means that we're going to see a lot of fan bases complaining about how bad people are at shooting them. Well, one thing I've noticed, and again, this is a very small sample size, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, you, you cover a mid-major conference. I, I cover the Big South. That's, that's my beat. One thing I have noticed, though, in watching Big South games, and once, we, once you get into conference, they're not called as closely as they were out of conference. It, it was just you know, foul fest USA when they were playing out of conference. But now that they've gotten into conference play, I'm starting to see a lot more, you know, letting them play. I'm starting to see a lot more guys getting up and screaming for fouls instead of the automatic, you know, foul call coming. Uh, I'm starting to see a few more charges. We had said pretty much that it was going to be an automatic block anytime a guy drove the lane and, and a guy was there, whether he was in position or not. But we're starting to see that kind of correct itself a little bit. And I'm not sure whether that comes from a directive or whether officials are just kind of getting back into their groove in conference play or how that is. But keep an eye on that, too. But haven't we seen this before with rule changes in college basketball have, or early yeah. in the season? The rule changes come out and there are points of emphasis and officials will go almost overboard trying to show, hey, we've read all the directives. We've right. watched all the DVDs that were sent out. We have done our homework. We are changing our style to show that we are in touch with the rule of the game. And then as the season goes on, slowly but surely, you start to see the whistles, you know, stay silent just a little bit more, and there's a little more contact involved. And as you mentioned, the block charge call this year, the way that the rule's written, to get a charge, you pretty much have to be waiting before the guy ever dribbles the ball, it seems like. You know, the way that it's written. True. You know, before and, the guy's upward momentum starts, well, that could be interpreted in a whole lot of ways. Yeah, time was, you know, all you had to do was be outside of the little, uh, you know, arc Restricted under the basket. Area. Yeah, be outside of that, 
and be in straight up and down position and be set. And that, that used to be able to draw a charge. Now it's a little bit different. Very different. But again, we've seen these rule changes in the past. I mean, pretty much at either level, too. I mean, even with hand-checking emphasis in the NBA, we saw it called more early in the season. And then as you get to playoff basketball, uh, you can bet that they're not calling those hand-checks nearly as close. And come tournament time, I just have a hard time believing that they're going to be calling hand-checking and these touch fouls as close in the NCAA tournament as they did you know, back in November. I think the big thing is you're starting to get, get a lot more eyes on basketball now with, with football being over uh, at the college level and, and with more games being televised. That's probably accounting for some of this too. That's not a bad point at all. And sooner or later, even if the, res- the result has been more scoring, and I believe scoring is still up around close to 20% across college basketball uh, from last year, or I'm sorry, the the amount of free throws is up around 20%. Scoring is up around 10, roughly. Right. So, uh, you know, the rules have had the intended effect of increasing scores, but if you see games that are just higher scoring because they're more free throw shot, does that necessarily mean a better game? No, not really. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you, you figure that if baseball wanted to, you know, kind of tamp down the stolen base, for example. And so because of the rules, they implemented more throws to first. You know, that's that's not what people want to see. People don't want to see – they want to see more scoring, but they don't want to see it at the expense of shooting, you know, 30 free throws a side a game. That's that's a little much. Free throws are not real exciting. Uh, no. The only time free throws are exciting are when it's the very end of the game and teams employ I'm going to foul you tactic to try and stay in it. Mm-hmm. And they're just exciting in the sense of, oh, I really hope that we can hit this free throw to stay in the lead of the, and that's the reaction of the team, you know, the fans of the teams that are, you know, leading. That's the only time that they're exciting. I mean, come on, and the, you know, with ten minutes left in the first half and there's a touch foul and a team just went into the bonus and they start shooting free throws for the rest of the half. Does that mean it's going to be a good half? No. I got to say, I'm pretty fired up about tomorrow night's game. I, I have uh, Winthrop and Gardner Webb. Winthrop got one of the uh, absolute best guards in the Big South on Saturday, and Charleston Southern saw Nimley. And tomorrow night, Tyler Strange of Gardner Webb comes to Winthrop. So, two great guards, or actually three great guards, if you consider Winthrop's first game. They face Jordan Downing of Presbyterian, but a lot of lot of good guard play in the Big South. That's kind of how it works at the mid major level, but I always love seeing great guard play, and of course, Keon Moore, who transferred to Winthrop uh, from Catawba College. He was there. I think he was their leading scorer when he transferred from Catawba and came in, had 23 points the other day. Winthrop had three guys that hit five three-pointers each. So uh, starting to ramp up a little bit. Now, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned Gardner-Webb, and they were a team I worked on the, the Las Vegas Invitational for ESPN earlier this year. Right. And I saw that they were there, and obviously knowing your beat, I, I immediately asked you, like, well, what should I expect? And uh, you, if, if I remember correctly, the first thing out of your mouth about them was their style. Uh, yeah, definitely. They, uh, they're they called Gardner Webb for a reason, G-U-A-R-D. And, oh, I get uh, it. I get it. <laughs> but, I mean, they have a lot of veteran guard play. Uh, you know, they have a young coach in Tim Kraft. And, and one of their coaches, uh, who's probably done more for that program than anything, Chris Holtman, actually left as the head coach at Gardner Webb to take a job as an assistant coach at Butler. So uh, that's that's a tough career move. But Tim Kraft has come in from ECU, and, and they're still trying to adjust to him a little bit. You, you have all kinds of stuff in the Big South. You have Campbell, which plays a a Pres, or Presbyterian Princeton style of offense. 
uh, which they <laughs> I, I'm scared to even get into what a Presbyterian style <laughs> offense might be, but that's that's not something we want to get. Hey, Presbyterians are pretty offensive. But no. <laughs> um, the, the funny thing is, they do that with they transfer from VCU, so they have a, a kid who was in the Havoc system who comes into a Princeton offense. Now. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, though, is if you look at some of the records of teams, and I'm talking overall records around right. the Big South Conference, and you, you see a lot of teams where, where you have records that aren't that far away from 500 either direction. Sure. Now, especially a, a conference like the Big South, I mean, how many of these – how deceptive would you say some of these overall records are because teams have to take money games? Uh, very much so. I mean, you look at, at Winthrop, just for example, just to throw them out there. And, of course, Gardner-Webb has some with, with uh, Xavier and Missouri, and uh, they played Duke, and they've, they've played several other schools. But uh, Winthrop, they had to play at VCU. They played at Dayton. Uh, they've, they've played a number of places and, and taken beatings. Uh, they, they played at North Carolina Central, which is another really good mid-major program and lost over there. Uh, that's that's kind of what this conference does. Now, the funny thing is they actually hang with a lot of these bigger schools. You don't see them going and you know taking the 55-60 point beat down. They actually play reasonably well against these schools, and Gardner-Webb played better against Duke than Elon did, which Elon's a SoCon school, which is supposedly you know a little higher profile. But that's the thing about the Big South. You're starting to see more young up-and-coming coaches taking jobs in this league. Of course, Cliff Ellis, the former Clemson coach at Coastal Carolina, being accepted. Uh, he's up there. But you're starting to see guys you know, come in from, from big-name schools. You're starting to see the Pat Kelseys of the world, who everybody looked at as a potential head coaching candidate all over the place. He's coaching at Winthrop now. Uh, Tim Kraft, as I mentioned, tomorrow night you're going to have a 38-year-old head coach against a 36-year-old head coach. Uh, so you're starting to see them create opportunities, and they're starting to get big-name transfers, too. You're having Najee Hibbert come in from Texas A&M, who's at Gardner-Webb. Uh, Rico McCarter come in from VCU, who's at Campbell. I mean, you're starting to get a lot more interest in this league and a lot more big-name guys that can play at that level. So you saw last year with Liberty, 20-loss team. They marched through the conference tournament and win the whole thing. Keep an eye on this conference. A lot of people, you know, pick on it. And really, for justifiable reasons, but it's it's fun basketball, and it's it's uh, it's good basketball fundamentally to watch. The thing that's interesting about the conference, just looking at it from afar, and I've been able to catch some of the action this year. But stylistically, <laughs> it's it's one thing when you look at conferences and you you can say, all right, you know, in the Mountain West, for example, you could say you've got Air Force, and they're also running a modified version of the Princeton style offense, although they've they've had a little bit of a more of a commitment to just shooting early in the shot clock. Uh, and then, you know, you have other teams like UNLV and they want to get more up and down, but that is really the case in the big South. And all you need to do is look at the scoring offense numbers where you could look at VMI averaging 89 a game. And then you have Presbyterian averaging 65 a game. Uh, yeah. Uh, VMI, so you get a little of everything in the big South. Yeah. VMI and Charleston Southern really are, are your two big scoring teams in, in that league. And of course, Charleston Southern played Florida state really close down there. They played uh, out at the pit and they were within, I think six points at the pit at one point, which that's not an easy place to win at all. Uh, as, as has been evidenced through the years, they played well out there. Um, VMI though, if you remember Reggie Williams, the, uh, the NBA player, uh, Reggie Williams played at VMI and, uh, it kind of started with his class and, and with guys in that class, uh, Duger Bauckham, their head coach, they, they run, they gun, they have a, a force in the middle in DJ Covington, but 
They have some of the best guards in the conference in Rodney Glasgow. I mean, there's there's all kinds of talent uh, in, in Lexington, and it's fun to watch them play. And Charleston Southern, as I mentioned, great guard play. The entire league is really known for guard play. Um, but Presbyterian, you mentioned them on the other side of the scale. They have Jordan Downing, who I believe had 37 against Georgia Tech, but uh, he's really the majority of their offense. They have Will Truss in the middle, who's you know a solid rebounder and, and uh, occasionally puts up double figures in the middle. But that's a team where they just went full D1, I think, a few years ago, as did USC Upstate. Upstate has ascended a lot quicker than has Presbyterian. Upstate already has gone to a postseason tournament. They went to the College Insider Tournament. Uh, they won at South Carolina. They've, they've got all kinds of big wins, and Presbyterian really just hasn't gotten there yet. But, yeah, there's, there's an interesting array of styles and coaches and everything else in that league. And if you want to find out more about it, BigSouthSports.com, you can find out more about the league and actually watch games online for free, which is kind of cool. Um, but it's it's good basketball. If, if you want to get away from watching Duke every night or watching uh, Michigan State every night or whatever else, it's really good basketball. You know, I just had an idea for, for a documentary of sorts. Okay. And imagine being able to follow a program as they spend their first year going full D1. Oh, wow. That would be worth seeing, absolutely. And the challenges that go with it and the money games that you're going to have to take and, you know, let's be frank, the losing that's probably going to come along with it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, unless unless it's a uh, unless it's a, an absolute power at a lower level of football maybe moving to, you know, moving up. But still, it's that would be a really interesting story. Um of course, the amount of resources it would take to do it and the amount of interest that it might generate back. Who knows if, if that would end up being worth it, but that would be an interesting story. I mean, I, I can only imagine what kind of challenges that that is like for an athletic department. Yeah, I mean, that would be a good 30 for 30 or something like that, just to follow a Presbyterian or an upstate or somebody like that as they, you know, make that jump because it's like you said, it's easy for some schools. USC Upstate used to be USC Spartanburg. They won a national championship at the Division II level 30 years ago. Um, you know, they already had that kind of built in, whereas some schools really didn't. I mean, Presbyterian, their current all-time wins leader coaches there, and Greg Nybert, but still, they've they've not been able to translate it at all at the uh, at the D1 level yet. They, they'll get there eventually, but right now they just don't have the athletes. I mean, we we had a chance to chat with, and this was years ago, John Schaefer when he was the play-by-play guy for Longwood right. when they were making the jump. And that was something we, we talked more with him about the team uh, than we did about the experience of going D1. But I wonder what that would be like um, for him to look back on now, especially with, with the jobs that he holds now, um, versus you know the experiences that he had with Longwood taking that program up a level. Yeah, by the way, you mentioned Longwood. They're they're now an occasional factor in the Big South. So, Well, I mean, and good for them. I mean, they, they couldn't have been nicer to us as well <laughs> with the access that they gave us, oh, yeah. not only with John Schaefer and their head coach. And um, So I'm glad that we were able to get them a little bit, this conference a little bit of run. And it's just something where, you know, most of the time, if you're a casual college basketball fan, you don't hear about these conferences until March or, you know, tournament week or things of that nature. And, you know, there's still plenty of good players out there and plenty, plenty of good basketball being played. You just, you know, actually have to be open-minded to it, just like most anything else. Yeah, that's another thing, too. Uh, ESPNU actually has a national deal now for carrying the Big South game of the week or whatever it is. Um, so when you find those games, park yourself in front of the couch. I, I think that the next one I know of is uh, February 1st. 
uh, Campbell and Coastal Carolina. I mentioned Campbell having Rico McCarter, who transferred from VCU. Uh, Coastal Carolina, of course, has had some success at that level. Um, but this year they've been kind of around the 500 level, kind of like Campbell. But uh, definitely watch these games, check out these teams, and see what they do. Because a lot, a lot of these guys, you'll be seeing them come March, and you'll wonder about their stories, and you can get a little bit of a head start on it. So keep an eye out for those games when they show up. Yeah, um, everyone's looking for the next upset somewhere. I mean, come on. You can't just pick chalk all the way through your bracket, can you? Well, you can. It's boring. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, boring. By the way, I, I should probably give you one more good news story before we go to the unfortunate news on this program. But uh, got a note from friend of the program, Barrett Sally, who's the lead SEC writer for BleacherReport.com, who points this out. This from a press release that came out earlier today. MLB Advanced Media announces that RBI Baseball 14, a video game brand not seen in nearly two decades, will return this spring. Interesting. Uh, RBI Baseball 14 is being developed by MLB Advanced Media for multi-platform distribution across current and next-gen consoles and smartphones and tablets. Uh, and they have a site for it and a Twitter for it. The site rbigame.com and the Twitter is at rbigame. Now, I am just the name RBI Baseball brings a smile to my face. Yes, same here. H- however... Don't you just get a little afraid that that just might end up ruining something that you really liked playing when you were a kid? Yeah, it's it's kind of it like come out so well. Yeah, if they brought back triple play baseball, same thing, or if they brought back you know sports talk football, you know. Bases loaded. Remember yeah. bases loaded? Oh yeah, the original Nintendo. Yep. Ken Griffey Jr. baseball. Yeah, that was supposed to be a great game, and I didn't have that system. I didn't have that console. <laughs> So I never got a chance to play it, but I mean, you know, that was one of the things. You know, when if it was a Genesis versus Super Nintendo situation, it's like, hey man, you played Big Hurt Baseball? No, <laughs> I haven't have a Genesis. Sorry, I, there's no shame in having a Genesis. I uh, let's let's just say I adjusted my class schedules on numerous occasions so that I could, uh, you know, beat the hell out of men roommate on NHL '93 and '94. On the Genesis. Oh yeah, no those NHL '93 and '94 were fantastic. There were a couple times where, um, because you know I was uh, super cool as a kid, and now uh, <laughs> when I went to 20 minute periods and played with the Western Conference All Stars versus the Quebec Nordiques <laughs> to see how many goals I could score, I think the most I got up to was like 40 something. <laughs> Jeez, that's fair. Super fair. <laughs> Uh, this leaves a great segue into our our last story of yeah, of the show, doesn't I, it? I was going to say, uh, you mentioned earlier in the program uh, a friend of the program, a friend of yours, somebody that you've been uh, blessed enough to share company with, Jerry Coleman, the colonel. Uh, unfortunately, we lost him January 5th. And again, we planned to talk about this last week. Unfortunately, we were able to do so because of the technical concerns. 89 years old. And you look at this man's life and think of what he was able to accomplish in his life. There are a lot of people who live 89 years and, and wouldn't get anywhere near what this man did. And, of, of course, I, I got the same tired stuff when I mentioned that he was a hero. People say, well, you know, loss of life is bad, but, uh, you know, firemen and military people are the real heroes and blah, 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 not athletes. And I, I responded to them here as I did then. Uh, I don't say that the man's a hero for what he did on the field. I say that the man's a hero for who he was, for the fact that he served this country in two separate wars. Two wars. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just for 
and and again, you you know him a lot better than I ever would. So uh, you you obviously have a lot more interaction under your belt with the colonel. But just from what I saw of him, just the genuine article as a man. And there's there's so much good stuff to say about him. But before we get into any of it, I wanted to share with everybody the comments. And, and we we kind of we teased Ted Leitner on this program lovingly. He's a San Diego legend, a San Diego State legend, a Padres legend. We kind of you know playfully refer to him as Uncle Teddy and you know various other things. But he had the unfortunate duty of kind of eulogizing the Colonel on air. And I wanted to share with with you and with everyone the words from Ted Leitner once we found out that we had lost the Colonel, Jerry Coleman. It's amazing how in life, and I don't mean to be a philosopher because I'm not. I'm just a broadcaster. But it's amazing how, just like in life, you're up, you're down. You're, you're, you're euphoric, and then you're, you're, you're brought down by something. I got a call last night that my broadcast partner of, of 35 years, Jerry Coleman, was in critical condition with bleeding of the brain. I had known that he has had this condition since he fell weeks before Christmas, but I had spoken to him, and he had gotten out of the hospital before Christmas. We talked on the phone. We insulted each other as usual. We laughed and laughed and laughed. But as now it has become official, I must tell you that Jerry Coleman has died this afternoon. I don't know that I've ever had a worse moment in my life, something that I've dreaded, and thought about and feared forever. But 88 years, and I had a chance to know, work with, and call friend and mentor one of the best human beings, one of the greatest men, maybe the greatest I have ever known in my life. But Gerald Francis Coleman, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Marine Corps, retired, Yankee, Padre, player, executive, broadcaster, is no longer with us. There is nothing that could ever replace that in my life or, quite frankly, in the ongoing history of the San Diego Padres. There'll be marvelous moments. There'll be marvelous baseball, great moments at the ballpark, but never, ever quite the same because the true voice of San Diego Padre baseball has been stilled as of today. My condolences to Maggie, to Diane, to Chelsea, to Jerry Jr., and obviously we will talk more about this because not just locally, this is a national story. One of the great defenders of this country in his combat and leaving baseball twice to fight in two wars. It's more than just a baseball player, more than just a broadcaster. I share that with you here today as I was so elated about the Aztecs winning and my heart is now breaking with, with the loss of Jerry Coleman. You hear the end of that. And uh, it's never easy. Those of us who've been in media, those of us who've prepared to be in media, uh, we, we know. It's never easy to eulogize anybody in real time. It's especially not easy to eulogize a friend, uh, an icon, somebody who meant so much to so many in real time. It's even worse when you're coming off of an absolute highlight, which right. which he was calling a San Diego State victory, and then having to switch gears that quickly, and say what he said. And again, as I mentioned, we kind of, you know, we we lovingly pick on on Ted from time to time. 
Uh, again, I think it's done with more reference and re- reverence rather than anything else. But that two minutes and nineteen seconds is raw re- emotion. It's real. It's honest. And in a world where we don't get a whole lot of reality, a whole lot of honesty in the booth, thank God for Ted to just let it go and just say what he felt. And for, you know, those back at the station not to cut him off and and not to interrupt what was being said. And, you know, there's never a perfect thing to say in those kinds of situations. There's never a perfect uh, way to get all that conveyed. But what he said, the way he said it, you know it's real. And that to, that to me was what connected so much with me. I know that you, as I mentioned, have so much more to, t- to talk about with the colonel than do I. So I'll, uh, I'll let you share your memories of him. I, as many people have said, I, I feel privileged to have known the man. I really do. I covered Padres baseball for just over... 10 seasons and I traveled with the team for five of them. And the way that the plant, the team, the seating arrangement on the team plane is laid out is when you go in the coaches and, uh, you know, so Bud Black and his staff take over the first class cabin and then the media has the area right behind the bulkhead and then the players and then the, the rest of the staff, I should say trainers and whatnot. And then the players have the back of the plane. Um, I was in a situation where I was flying around the country sitting right behind Jerry Coleman for several years, which it was really amazing to do because I did have some opportunities where I moved up a row and sat down while he had a glass of white wine, which he would often do on the plane, and had a chance to just talk with him. And there were amazing conversations. I mean, how many people would be able to share some of the things that he was able to do? And you mentioned uh, all of these things, but talking about playing with the Yankees and, you know, the legends that were there as he was playing and being able to speak about that. And, and not, you know, and the thing is, is he would never offer it up on his own. You, you practically had to drag it out of him because he did not want to talk about himself. And it just showed what a humble human being he was. Uh, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, how many people do you think who are famous now who had half the the life resume, so to speak, that the colonel did would be walking around telling everyone about it at all times? And the man was so incredibly humble um, that he, you know, he acted like he was just another person. And he wasn't and we all knew that and um you know he was very gracious um i mean i have a a little story that that has nothing to do with much of anything um but i remember one day uh, we were sitting on the tarmac waiting to take off somewhere and again you know as i mentioned we were in the i was sitting in the, the row right behind him and he was messing with his cell phone and he you know was not happy with it and couldn't get the thing to work right. And when I was in college, uh, you know, I used to work for a couple cell phone companies and always thought they've just kind of made sense to me. So I, you know, I moved up to him and I said, well, you know, what's going on? How can I, let me help you out. And he said, would you, would you mind helping me with this? Would you? And I was like, Oh yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it's Jerry Coleman. I mean, anything the guy asked me to do, I was, of course, Jerry, no problem. 
but he would never expect that. So we flew to Denver, and uh, Jerry and I made plans to have lunch the next day where I was going to help him with his phone. Now, I helped him with his phone and simply just programmed in a couple things so he could speed dial his wife, his daughter, and a couple other people. And the man insisted in taking me out to the Palm Steakhouse for lunch. Wow. I mean, a thank you would have been, you know, more than enough. Like, I, I was just happy to help him out. And the guy was just like, no, I'm taking you to lunch right now. We're going to the Palm. I'm like, uh, thank you very much, Jerry. <laughs> like, I mean, such a gracious man. And, uh, and as much as anything, I mean, I got to sit and, again, talk with him for an hour as we shared lunch. And those are the kind of things that I'm going to be able to remember about the man. The other thing that I, I, I have thought about a bunch um, since his passing is every time you would pass him, you know, when you get in there for media purposes, you're getting there several hours um, before the game starts. For TV, you know, it's not uncommon for us to be getting there sometime one, maybe two o'clock for a home game if we're really set up. Uh, those kinds of things. Now, go up to the press box, drop some things off for, for our announcers, and Jerry would always be there very early. Always. And as you'd pass him in the hallways, he would always have something to say to me. And his favorite line, and this would be about you know 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, something like that, maybe even a little later, but it was always the same where he'd pass me in the hallway and be about time you got here. it never failed to make me smile it never did the man still had a sense of humor and um you know there's been uh sure an outpouring of grief that has come with his passing and understandably so i mean with all the man has accomplished and you know we've already and i'm sure you've probably seen or heard in other media outlets all of the the tributes that have been done, and one of the ones that was very popular and extremely well done was the one by Keith Olbermann. No matter what you think of him, his his tribute was fantastic. Um, but the thing that I always have thought immediately since learning of his passing was, if there is anyone that I can possibly think of in this world that has lived a full life, it was Jerry Coleman. And that is in no way... Uh, designed to diminish the significance of his passing or the grief that surrounds it or the sadness that we all have to see him go. But the man has lived about as full a life as you know one could ever imagine. And we've, we've rattled these things off before. World Series MVP with the Yankees fought in two wars for his country, lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. And then moved on to another phase of his life of broadcasting, where he worked doing national games of the week, even managed the San Diego Padres at one point, has been associated with the franchise for, I mean, you can't separate Jerry Coleman and the Padres. That's how, that's the relationship that he had with with the franchise. And all of these things, Hall of Fame broadcaster. These just if if most people are able to accomplish one of these things that I've rattled off, they will say that they have had a great life. And to think about all of the things he was able to do and experience and the attitude that he was able to keep with him along the way. 
was just incredible. So when I heard of his passing, of course there was sadness that came with it. However, again, it's given me solace to think that if there's anyone that I know or have known that has lived a fuller life than Jerry Coleman, I can't think of them. Yeah, see, I think, honestly, that's that's the thing. When, when you see a lot of... Uh... You know, a lot of our contemporaries, a lot of people that we we grew up knowing and and loving, and people have described Jerry Coleman as as the soundtrack to their childhood. And when, mm-hmm. when you see people like that pass, there's always kind of a, a sense of uh, of loss internally because something that was so much you know a part of your life is now gone. But you also, in in times like this, as tough as it is to do, with people especially like. Like the Colonel, you have to celebrate the man's life because of Absolutely. who he was, the impact he made on others. And that's that's really the key thing to me is, sure, he's done all these great things and he's been all these great places. But look at the impact he's had on other people. And that, to me, is his legacy. And, and you know, you think of even Vin Scully saying we were much richer for having known him. That's Vin Scully saying that. And, uh, you know, you think... I, I heard a segment this week where, where Vince Scully called in and talked to, to Hacksaw Hamilton, and that's that's another person we kind of tease on this program. But I, I was so impressed with Hacksaw for just kind of staying out of the way and letting letting Vin speak for ten minutes about you know Jerry Coleman and about his life and about the stories that those two had. And you think about those two and the contributions that they've made to society and and what they've left with other people, you know, what they'll leave behind. And and you know, my father mentioned this to me before. He said, you know, you think of of Vin Scully and how he's talked about Jerry Coleman and talked about Jack Buck and talked about, you know, all these people we've lost. Who's going to talk about Vin Scully when he goes? Uh, I can't even imagine. I, uh, you talk about the celebration of life and that is something that actually is slated to happen in a more public setting this Saturday at Petco right. Park at 1030 in the morning. And right. uh, it's something that I greatly regret that, you know, due to work commitments, I will not be able to attend, and, and it really is something that um, bothers me a great deal. But at the same time, in celebrating his life, thinking about the lives that he touched, as you mentioned, imagine growing up in Southern California, you know, for the last 30, 40 years, being able to listen to Vin Scully and Jerry Coleman, if you so chose. I mean, what, what a gift that might be to someone's life. Yeah. Um, and... Some of the uh, the tributes, you know, we've mentioned before. One of the ones that I really loved um, was the show at San Diego State, showing up all holding up stars uh, for the first Aztec home game after his passing. Uh, I really did appreciate that one. Um, just, you know, especially younger people showing their appreciation and understanding um, just how amazing the man was. Uh, the things that he brought... I mean, O Doctor and Hang a Star on that one are going to be part of Padre's lexicon forever. Yeah. They will never go away. And those are the kind of things that, you know, are just, just uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg of what the man brought to the table. But there's a reason that those will stay forever but be- because the man meant that much to the franchise and meant that much to San Diego. And um, I'm glad that uh, that those will that those will remain. I mean, I, the man, it's, he's one of those people where no matter how cliche it sounds, if, if we can live 
anything close to the life he did, I mean, that would be the greatest tribute we can pay and by conducting ourselves in the fashion that he did, not necessarily by measuring ourselves versus his accomplishments because good luck. I mean, quite honestly, good right. luck. Right. But if we can somehow just conduct our lives in the way that he did with the same humility, with the same graciousness, that is really how we can best pay tribute to the man. I'll share this with you. This is from Gaslamp Ball and uh, Gaslamp Ball, friends of the program. And, and uh, I saw this and it really resonated with me and I thought it would resonate with you too. So I'll, I'll share this with you. We don't normally read Gaslamp Ball stuff in, in its entirety, but this is something that needs to be shared. Uh, it says, I had a grandpa once that I was very close with. The great thing about grandparents is that so much of what is new to you was also new to them once. You get ready for your first homecoming and an old man's eyes light up as he tells you the story of how he missed that last bus home so we could ask your grandma for a dance. We don't see the special moments in our own lives as they happen. There's a crossroads where hope meets memory, and it fuels a timeless kind of relationship between those who've seen so much and those at life's doorstep itching to open their eyes. For many of us, Jerry Coleman was like that grandpa. Everyone here loves baseball, but there was a time in our lives when we didn't know the infield fly rule. In the erstwhile days of our fanhood, we soaked up all the baseball we could, and it was all new to us. Over 50-plus years in baseball, the colonel had seen it all. As eager as you were to experience baseball, Jerry was just as eager to share it with you. He loved the game, and all he wanted was for you to love it with him. He was an institution in San Diego, and little leaguers who tuned into the Padres after practice could one day listen to the Colonel with their own children. We grew up thinking Jerry would always be there, like Cracker Jack Man or the Smiling Friar or the fast crack of the bat echoing through the stands. Jerry Coleman was special in much the same way that baseball is special. For a few hours every day in the summer, you don't have to think about Benghazi or unemployment or twerking. The warm sun over a mellow breeze, the soft buzz of the radio, and the effervescent narrator there to guide you through the innings and the hitters and the teams and the cities. Hours melt away in a sense it's hard to remember. What even happened in this game? What's the score? What year is it? The Colonel's broadcast accompanied the game in a way that was as timeless and charming as baseball itself. His presence was the embodiment of a day spent at the ballpark. A lot of people will remember the spirited calls of, Oh, Doctor, and the delighted proclamations of, You can hang a star on that one. But for me, the wonderful thing about a person like Jerry Coleman was that he was able to bring the otherwise excruciating minutia of life and baseball together and deliver something special. When I remember Jerry Coleman, I don't think of the 1998 pennant winning call. I think of the four-pitch walks by Matt Clement and the long at-bats by Wiki Gonzalez. I think of strange anecdotes about the hotel bellhop. Like the North Star on a moonless night, Jerry was the constant in a world that was always changing. Without him, the sky's a little darker and a happy part of our lives has gone painfully and conspicuously silent. No matter what awful things were happening in your world or mine, he always managed to elicit the softest, most imperceptible chuckle when it was needed most. His words filled the unnamed, unremembered moments that drifted away peacefully into the ether. Jerry, who'd experienced so much in his exciting and incredible life, always seemed the most eager to tell you about the great cone of ice cream he had at the ballpark that day, or the kind stranger he met at the hotel. He married the spectacular with the everyday in a way that that made every inning we spent with him into the smallest treasure. We'll all miss you. You know, that reminded me, as they talked about the minutiae, as, as stuff that you'll remember. And one of the things that, that would happen almost every – I mean, it was it was something that people waited for, was for Ted Leitner to ask Jerry about, Jerry, how was your day? What would you do today, Jerry? What would you do this morning? And they would chat about that, and you got to know them as people. Right. And as that curtain starts to come back and you start to get to know the person who's actually behind the microphone instead of just a voice telling you what's happening on a baseball field – that person starts to grow nearer and dearer to you, and of course, understandably so. And 
Jerry, I mean, with all we've talked about with Jerry, why wouldn't you want to have him near and dear to you? Uh, but uh, it reminded me of another story where um, an associate producer on our show and our graphics operator who we traveled with um, you know, the entire time, uh, a guy named Bob Weersdorfer, who was, uh, is a very kind man as well and, and was, has been great to me. Uh, while we were in Atlanta, I remember him telling me a story about how they were driving to the ballpark with Nick Davis, who was the producer before I was on Padres Telecasts, and they saw Jerry Coleman walking to Turner Field, and they pulled over and asked to pick him up. <laughs> or actually, what happened was is they drove past him, and Bob said, wait, I, I could have sworn I just saw Jerry Coleman walking down the sidewalk. So they went around the block and doubled back, and sure enough, it was Jerry, and pulled over, and they said, Jerry, why don't you hop in? We'll give you a ride. And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, wow. and they were like, uh, are you sure? And, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm good, guys. Go ahead. I'll see you over there. And he's like, oh, okay. Because, as you know, if you're staying in downtown Atlanta and walking to Turner Field, that's not exactly through the best part of town. No, not so much. <laughs> so this happened, and, you know, I remember this. The first time we were in Atlanta, Bob shared this story with me, and, you know, each time we'd be back, we'd kind of re- remember it. And, and then the, I believe it was my third year, so this would have been uh, 2010. <laughs> we're driving to the ballpark, and sure enough, same thing happens where Bob says to me, I think I just saw Jerry Coleman walking along. And sure enough, we double up back around the block, and I pull over, and I will never forget it. And I say, Jerry, why don't you hop in the car? And he's like, guys, I'm getting my exercise. (laughs) So the thing is, is that would be the kind of thing where he just thinks, you know, I mean, that would be the kind of thing where as he's walking along, something he saw on that walk would be something he would share on the air later that day. And all of a sudden, that would become part of people's lives. And it's something that's become part of my life because he was stubbornly refusing to accept, you know, accept a ride from us because he didn't ever think of himself. I mean, even as he grew older, he just like, look, this is this is me. I'm doing my thing. And that's that's the stuff that I remember about him. But doing it in a, such a gracious and, and, you know, a way that's so full of humility that, you know, it never put anyone off or anything of that nature. And. I just I always remember him with a smile because, like I said, whenever I would see him, um, he would always put a smile on my face. You, you brought up a great point there, and it's something that we don't get to talk about enough, honestly. I, I think that when you look at this business, and of course it's it's the business that you and I have chosen, and, and it's a business that we've followed for years, but that's one thing that I think when people complain about broadcasters these days, and, and there's all kinds of you know, with the internet being the internet, there's all kinds of forums to complain about these kinds of things. Even our friends over at Awful Announcing have, uh, you know, have thrown their hat in the ring to uh, provide a forum for these kinds of things. But really, that's that's where we've lost a lot of the soul in corporate television is that ability that Jerry had, the ability that Vin has, that Dick Enberg has, you know, so many other people of that time to be able to take the smallest thing that they saw, as you mentioned, on that walk to Turner Field or, or whatever it is, and just make it relatable. That's that's an art form, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like you're just you know passing along something you saw or whatever. That is an art. And far too many people these days that, that crack a mic don't have it. Um, you know, it's it's been... A fitting tribute in many cases to see these statues that have popped up outside of ballparks, you know, all over the country. It has. And 
Yeah, and it's and it's been great in in so many ways, and so many of them are done so well. And unfortunately, there are some that haven't come out so well. Like I really wish the Cardinals would redo Stan Musial's statue, as it looks very little like him. Agreed. Um, mostly, but uh, the Padres statue of Jerry Coleman uh, in his flight gear that is at Petco Park um, is fantastic, and you know the fans that came and left signs or flowers or whatever they so chose at his statue um and it became you know uh if if it's possible to have a great scene you know in in the sadness uh it really was great to be able to see fans go there and in their own way before this celebration of life that is still forthcoming pay their pay their respects that way and the fact that his statue will be there, uh, along with the fact, I mean, you know, the press box at Petco is named after him. And I, I have no doubt that Hang a Star, as I said, will be part of Padres lore for the history of the franchise. But um, that statue, not just representing him as a baseball player, I, I really love that they chose to show him in his flight gear because – I'm sure he took a lot more pride in his service to his country. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And um, that just highlights the selfless nature of it. The only the only player to, you know, leave baseball twice to fight in two wars. I mean, that, that, that says a lot. Yeah, and, and you know that uh, the first time in the 2014 season, and, and somebody... Somebody will, just in tribute. You know that the first time that you see the star come out of the press box window, it's going to bring a smile, it's going to bring a tear, it's going to bring a lot of different emotions. You know it's going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's... Um, I mean, we, we have lost a true giant uh, in the world of baseball, not just in the world of, of broadcasting, but beyond that, it's just we've lost a giant in our world. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this very simply, and uh, I've I've seen a lot of stuff going on this week, and and you have too, with uh, with the A Rod stuff and all that that we we don't even want to talk about on this program because it's just what's the point, honestly. But I, I'll say this: you you and I both, uh, I think we both acknowledge that we tend to, despite in your case all the travel that you went through with it, and and in my case, all the uh, all the stuff with you know A Rod and everything else, we tend to romanticize this game. And I think it's because of the way we came up. It's because of the reverence we were taught to this game. It's because of the voices that we heard as youngsters. It's because we played this game. There are so many reasons that we romanticize this game and that we love this game. And when we think about what we love about this game, it all comes back to everything that the Colonel stood for. Mm-hmm. Plain and, simple. And, and, you know, one of the things we haven't even mentioned was just simply that even – his mistakes were enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, very they true. were. Very I true. mean, you talk about the the infamous line about Rick Fol- Rich Folkers is throwing up in the bullpen. <laughs> All the malapropisms that he had, you know, sliding into second with a stand up double, and um, I think that that shows a lot about how he was received not only by Padre fans, but people across the country, as I said, he did national games of the week that those things would come out of his mouth and it was entertaining for people. It wasn't, it wasn't, and not in a malicious way at all. It was enjoyable. It just was, you know, Hey, we're all human. (laughs) And, um, I just, 
I, I remember reading a tweet by uh, Josh Issue, who is a member of the Padres public relations team, and he just simply said the press box will never be the same. And it's true. It is absolutely true. And, um, you know, I think about, like I mentioned, seeing him in the afternoon and those quips of it's about time you got here. And those are the kind of things that I'll never forget because he had his special way um, of putting a smile on everyone's face, whether you were listening on the radio, whether you passed him in the hallway. And um, those kind of people who were able to bring those emotions to a wide, wide spectrum of people, um, I mean, they have a gift. And uh, not only am I glad that he shared that gift with with the world, uh, but also the rest of his gifts throughout his life and all the things that he did. Well, I, I say this all the time. I say that I'm jealous of you, and it's it's uh, you know it's said in, in any kind of spiteful manner. But you know what I'm sure. getting at for for being around guys like Jerry Coleman and and to have met Buck O'Neill and and to have met these people who are not just necessarily baseball figures. And I, I think really if you marginalize Jerry Coleman to a baseball figure, or if you marginalize Buck O'Neill to a baseball figure, you're, you're really doing them a disservice because they've meant so much to society, and that to me is what matters long term. And and you know when you think of what Buck O'Neill did for this country, not necessarily just for the game, you know you can always kind of carry that that uh, that legend with you. When you think of of Jerry Coleman and who he was and what he meant to so many people, you can carry that with you. And really, the baseball stuff is is great. But that's not the stuff that stays with you. No. And, um, you know, the the thing that – another parallel that I'd, I'd say between Buck O'Neill and Jerry Coleman is that they both had a certain youngness at heart that, that did stay with them. I mean these these guys, you know, even as they moved into their 80s, you talk to them and it's like they're, they're, they're more than still there. I mean I uh, – can't remember or I, I can remember I should say talking and saying several times like I hope that I'm alive at you know into my 80s let alone doing as well as Jerry Coleman is doing and um, the the fact that you know and I think that the way that those gentlemen are able to carry themselves plays a huge role in the fact that they're able to you know, keep sharing those gifts with the world as long as they do because of the way that they look at the world and, and what they can bring to the table. And, you know, you you really did say it perfectly by marginalizing Jerry Coleman as just a baseball man. Uh, you know, that's a disservice to him. And, you know, I, I think that the best way to sum all this up, I've, I've said this to you numerous times, and I, I'll say it again as we wind down here uh, in the last few minutes and seconds of the program, there's that old saying about how you always hope that your heroes never let you down. And the one thing that those who held Jerry Coleman as a hero, and really all of us should, can say is that as a hero, Jerry Coleman never let us down. That, that is a perfect way to sum it up. And, um, you know, I when, when I knew that I was going to be finishing up my last year um, working on... Uh, Padres baseball, uh, there were two people that I went out of my way to find um, to get autographs. One was Tony Gwynn, um, who is another fantastic man, and you know I'm so glad to be able to have met him and know him. Um, but the other was Jerry Coleman. 
because there's just no way to possibly uh, say goodbye to all the you know fantastic members of the media uh, in my case uh, without having a chance to say goodbye to him and he was you know gracious enough as you'd expect to sign a ball for me and you know it was uh, a prized possession before um, and saying even more prize now is is not accurate because just again just trying as you can tell it's very difficult to really define what he was as a man and what he was like to be around and all that he brought that was good to the world because you don't ever feel like you can really do it justice and when you start getting into that just stratosphere of being um i mean that really says all that 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 really describes it better than any words that I can possibly say. Very true. And uh, I want to thank you. I know this is not really an easy thing to do in in one regard. I know that it's great to think of all the great, you know, memories that you and Jerry have and all the, all the conversations you've had. And and I hope that those will stay with you more than anything else, but I know it's never easy to talk about things like this. We heard the, uh, the conversation from Ted at the beginning of all this. So uh, I just wanted to thank you for taking, you know, the time that you did to share your thoughts about the Colonel, a, a great man, and uh, one obviously that had a gigantic impact on you as an individual. Absolutely. It, it's a reductive way to put it, but nevertheless completely appropriate to say the man was the embodiment of the true American hero. And really, that's that's a great place to leave it. We, we never like uh, leaving the program on a uh, kind of a down note, but really when you think about the life of Jerry Coleman... It's not really all that down when you think about it. So, uh, again, that'll bring to a close the program. It's been Sports Matter for... Well, b- yes, before we ahead. take off, Brian, uh, yes. I guess if we wanted to leave it on a little bit of a happier note. Okay. Um, wherever the heck we go, I mean, who knows where we go after we pass on. Right. But I just hope that, let's just say that if, if heaven exists as in the, the way that, you know, we've been taught growing up, that I hope that when Jerry gets there that he's greeted with, Oh, it's about time you got here, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's perfect. I'll take that. That's, that's a better way to go out. So, uh, we'll leave it there. And, uh, as I mentioned, this has been sports matters for, and I remember the date this time, January 14th, 2014. Thank you all for, uh, for joining us and for indulging us. This is, uh, something that obviously means a lot to us. It's, uh, it states a lot of, of who we are, especially who Ed is. So, Thank you for uh, taking the time and listening to us. We'll see you back here next week. Same time, same channel. If you want to contact us, send us a tweet at Sports Matters. Send us an email, radio at sportsmatters.info. And uh, we'll see you back here next week, January 21st, 2014. The football season rapidly coming to a close. We'll talk about that and more next week. Until then, this has been Sports Matters. Take care.